0: Hey, everyone. The It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode.
1: We can publish some ideas that seem pretty out there, meaning literally out in the future, But even with those pieces, we do try to ground them in the here and now as well and have the author include what this means for how we should be thinking and acting today.
0: With so many journalists focused on breaking news and the here and now, there's a desperate need for someone to stick their head up, look down the road, and imagine the stories and issues we'll be dealing with in the future. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Noema is ancient Greek for thinking or the object of thought. Noema is also the name of a magazine from the Berggruen Institute that explores the transformations that are happening throughout the world. Today, I'm joined by Noema's executive editor, Kathleen Miles. Kathleen, welcome to It's All Journalism.
1: Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
0: Before I turn to the mics, I told you that I'd, I'd been looking through your magazine. It's really kind of an impressive publication, and it seems kind of you know unusual at this point to be putting out new magazines in, in print. So we thought it'd be really interesting to bring you in and to talk about it. So to start with, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved in journalism? How did, you know, what was your journey to Noema?
1: Well, initially, actually, I wasn't quite ready to go into straight into journalism, perhaps because I unconsciously knew that it would stick and I wasn't ready to settle in or perhaps because I wanted to have more breadth to my career. So I got some pretty colorful on the ground experiences first, I was a political action coordinator during the Kerry presidential campaign for the International Ironworkers. I was a field investigator investigating unfair labor practices at the National Labor Relations Board. I was a intercity English history humanities teacher with Teach for America and I was also a district representative for Congressman Adam Schiff. So, yeah, my journey has been winding and I've had some very rich eye-opening experiences along the way, and I love them all, but I, I didn't quite want to commit to one for the long haul because I had too many interests, I was always just drawn to being a generalist with my information consumption, perhaps to better see the bigger picture and interconnectedness of the fields that I've dabbled in and beyond. So I finally came to the pull of journalism and, and got a gig at the NPR station here in LA, KPCC. And from there, I went on to be an editor and reporter at HuffPost, covering economics and politics mostly. And while I was there, I met Nathan Gardels, the editor-in-chief of what would become Noema. And we had a couple of long conversations about what he was working on and how I thought I might contribute. And the rest is history. I've I've been a journalist now for over 10 years.
0: Wow. For this magazine, and certainly for the path that you sort of, you know, where you ended up, I think a lot of that early work probably helped to sort of inform kind of who you are and your perspective on things in a good way, I would imagine. So tell me a little bit about Noema. You mentioned that that uh, you were sort of discussing the, the concept of it. You know, what was the initial idea and how did it sort of come about?
1: You know, it's published by the Berggruen Institute. And so the Berggruen Institute is all about ideas and engaging with the most rich ideas that we can find that are our- outside the box and and somewhat daring, you know, the idea for Noema grew out of something called the World Post, which, so Noema launched in the spring of 2020. And before that, we ran a publication, Nathan and I and, and our other staff members ran a publication called the World Post, which was a partnership with HuffPost for a few years, and then with the Washington Post for a couple more years. And during those years, we were able to hone in on the topics we really wanted to own and to grow our audience and writers and staff and operational and processes. But with Noema, what we, what we wanted to do more of and what we've been able to do more of now while building on our previous foundation is more long form and more ideas-based content that is specifically less pegged to the 24-hour news cycle and that thus has a longer shelf life.
0: Okay, so sort of a, a deep thought type of thing is that you, you take a particular topic to say climate change or something. And, you know, you write about it in, in some depth. And I would imagine, is there a particular perspective? Or do, does each writer sort of bring whatever their perspective is?
1: Well, we definitely are nonpartisan, and we try to be global in our perspective, as opposed to Western. So I think another way to frame one of our goals is by covering overlapping fields. We cover everything from philosophy to economics, geopolitics, technology. Our aim is to get out of sort of the usual lanes and, and cross those disciplines and social silos and cultural boundaries. So we do publish a lot of academics and, and we have academic readers. That's not, that's not all we are, but speaking specifically of the academy and academic journals. Unfortunately, you know, they do still tend to silo disciplines. So philosophers tend to publish in and read philosophy journals and biologists tend to read and publish in biology journals and so forth. So we're aiming to capture some of the most innovative and unnoticed ideas in those academic and cross-disciplinary spaces and, and making them more accessible to a wider audience. And then on the sort of more traditional journalism side with Revenue sources drying up and fewer journalists, given the time they need to dig deeper to explore the underlying issues, we saw an opportunity to, with our resources and our time, fill that that gap and sort of to bridge the gap between journalists and academics who can be somewhat siloed from each other, as well as artists and scientists and novelists and others, to make sure that we're covering topics that are often overlooked in the news cycle.
0: So I guess what you're saying is you're not necessarily tied to the news cycle, but you may have produced works that touch on issues that, that are, you know, current and of interest, but also, I guess, surface things, uh, topics, and maybe ideas that people aren't focusing on. When I got the, the magazine, I was kind of surprised it, it's around a, a particular theme. I mean, do you set out to, okay, this is what the theme is going to be? Or do you, you know, how do you plan an issue like that?
1: Well so our print issue only comes out once a year and that's because we're covering great transformations that sweep hundreds or thousands of years i mean our topics are pretty up in the sky that way so our content tends to be pretty evergreen so ev- once a year makes sense so our annual edition is it's a physical archive of some of our most noteworthy and evergreen pieces of the year so we don't know at the beginning of the year, what the issue theme is going to be, but we tend to to answer your, your earlier comment, while we are not in the news cycle, we're definitely more tapped into sort of the conversation in the zeitgeist than, than a lot of philosophers and theorists are in academia who can be pretty detached and pretty theoretical. So we're sort of trying to not be so immediately attached to the, what happened in the, if, you know, if it happened more than 24 hours ago, it's already news, but also not be like ac- academics can be at times, which is, you know, who cares if, if it's relevant at all to, <laughs> to today's problems, it's interesting to me, so I'm going to pursue it. So going back to print, we're bringing in content that fits what I, what I just described. And then often the theme will, will come to us. It will become clear what our writers are focusing on, and what we we have found ourselves focusing on. You know, we've only done two print issues, so I can't say that it will, that it'll always be that way. It might be that we we have an idea and we're much more sort of determined to have our writers fit our idea, as opposed to going a little bit more with what our writers are are writing about.
0: You keep saying your writers. Do you have staff, or is this something that you're looking for experts in fields to pitch to you, or that you develop stories around particular topics with experts?
1: Because we've grown out of the World Post, which was founded seven years ago, we've had writers that have been writing for us all of these years. And some of them write for us continuously, some of them write for us once a year. And then we have a lot of one-off writers too that write for us once and then never again. We're always looking for new, fresh writers. So I don't mean to to make it sound like we have a stable of 12 people and those are our, our writers. That would be pretty limiting. You know, we're always looking for for new new voices. And and another source of exciting content for us when it comes to writers is the Berggruen Institute has a fellowship program that is sort of a, a way of incubating new ideas. And those fellows, after they spend a year or two researching their topic matter for the Berggruen Institute, they write for us an essay based on their research out of their fellowship. So those are some really fresh, fresh ideas that we get. And then they when their fellowship ends, they often continue to write for us over time.
0: Who do you see as the the reader of this magazine? Or even just your website. I mean, we, we talk about you publishing the magazine once a year, but you actually are putting content on the website. Who do you see as your readers?
1: For one, many of our readers are pretty similar to our writers. So again, they're academics, writers, scientists, and then of course people from varying backgrounds who are intellectually curious who want to delve more deeply into the issues behind the news and who aren't prepared to go navigate the plethora of academic journals, which are not very accessible to non-experts, even though some of the ideas would be fascinating to a wide audience. And then of course, also, not of course, but, but importantly, a part of our audience, we have some pretty elite readers, including current and former heads of state, and uh, this elite network came to us largely through the Berggruen Institute and its two co-founders, Nicholas Berggruen and Nathan Gardell. So yeah, it's it's pretty cool that we can see some of these leaders, including business leaders and prominent intellectuals, actually opening up our newsletter each week and sometimes writing to us to compliment it. Because these are people who act- are actually in a position to take some of the ideas and policy prescriptions we publish and run with them. So that's pretty exciting.
0: You've mentioned the Berggruen Institute a couple of times. And for those who don't know what what its mission is, what are they trying to do as an institute? What are they trying to do with you as a magazine?
1: Sure. So the Institute aims to engage with the best ideas out there from, again, non-partisan perspective and particularly a global perspective. So it does that in three ways. One is by celebrating existing great ideas, and probably the most prominent example of that is the Berggruen Prize, which celebrates philosophers and cultural thinkers who have had breakthrough ideas. It was recently announced this year that the prize is going to philosopher Peter Singer. And the the second thing the institute does is sponsor new ideas, as I mentioned earlier, as a kind of Ideas incubator. So it does that through staff researchers writing white papers and also through the fellowship program that I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, a program in which these fascinating individuals are off- offered fellowships to study the issues that the Institute is focused on. And the Institute facilitates collaboration among the fellows and gives them the research, the resources really that they need to develop their ideas. And then lastly, the Institute disseminates great ideas. So it does that through Noema magazine, through events and salons, and through a book series with the University of California Press. So yeah, there's this pretty clear synchronicity between the Institute goals and Noema, which you know makes us feel pretty lucky to have the Institute behind us
0: the focus on ideas and and on transformation the, the things that are that are changing constantly changing in our world i think, I think it's a, such a rich you know rich a source of, of stories and ideas what do you see as the challenges of you know covering transformation and new ideas what do you have to do to to sort of find something that that you think needs to be amplified and shared
1: it's a moving target of course and sometimes We can publish some ideas that seem pretty out there, meaning literally out in the future. But even with those pieces, we do try to ground them in the here and now as well and have the author include what this means for how we should be thinking and acting today. One helpful medium that I've been thinking about recently is science fiction. It's something that we've just started to publish a bit at Noema. We published a fantastic short story by the Hugo Award-winning Chinese sci-fi writer, Hao Jing Feng. And we have another one coming soon by James Bradley. And we also have a few stories in the works with some cli-fi authors, cli-fi being futuristic fiction focused on climate change and imagining how we might respond to it. So I'm looking to publish more science fiction stories that specifically only go out one to 10 years, rather than let's say 500 years out where you're making, you know, these kind of wild imaginative guesses rather than an informed prediction or possibility in the near term. So another example recently, we had a writer who had a really innovative idea for data policy. And instead of describing what it should look like, he pretended he was writing a year in the future and described what it does look like. So this kind of writing lets you play out policy proposals so that people can actually imagine and see what you're envisioning through often a fictional character who has lived it or is living it. So that's one way.
0: That's a really interesting approach. You know, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think, especially if you're looking at it from a, you know, from a journalistic standpoint that, you know, I got to report the facts. I got to, you know, I can't just make stuff up, but using science fiction as a tool, as a way to tell something and imagine something in and of itself, maybe it isn't, true or whatever, but the truth that informs it is something that the people who are reading it, the people who may be making policy decisions, it allows them to think in a different way. Maybe imagine something that's very similar to what was in the science fiction story. Anyway, so I think. I don't know. So what's a typical day like for you as an editor?
1: Uh, Well, there isn't really a typical day. I mean, it depends right now we've just hired up a couple of people. So that that's changing my workflow, but we are constantly commissioning and editing essentially it's those two categories. So we're commissioning under the umbrella of commissioning, I would include fielding pitches. So we are fielding pitches that are, we like our pitches to be at least a couple paragraphs long, if not preferably the whole draft. So I'm reading draft submissions that Come in cold. We get a fair number of cold submissions from people we don't know, and from writers that we know. So I'm reading those. I'm discussing with my team members if they work for us or not. If um, if they aren't quite right, can we edit them in a way that works for us or not? Those are not easy decisions to be made, especially when these are often long, long pieces or you know, four thousand words sometimes. So we have to determine maybe there's a section of it that works for us. Those are the inside out or outside-in pitches, I like the ones that come from the out. But then we have also our own internal brainstorming sessions where we come up with what we want that we don't have, what topics do we want to cover, what ideas have we seen percolating that we want to read more about, and then kind of like a casting director, who do we want? Who's the person to write that, to explore that topic? We don't tell the person, you know, this is what your thesis is going to be, this is what your opinion is going to be, but rather this is the question, this is what we're wondering about could you explore it some more and and the exploring is the process the product is they need to have a thesis that is declarative and backed up with details and examples it's not that the piece itself is just sort of exploring and leaving you nowhere it needs to have a an angle but yes that's the commissioning side where we're sometimes reaching out to people cold sometimes going to people that have written for us before and then building the the pitches that come in. And then on the editing side, particularly because these are such long pieces, it's a process. There are multiple rounds back and forth with the author. There is a fact-checking round that can have multiple iterations as well. Then there's packaging, what we call packaging, which is pull quotes, headline, deck, artwork. I'm sure you noticed that our artwork is pretty standout and pretty unique, we commission individual artists to create original work based on the essay. So again, that requires time that most mainstream media outlets don't have. And we we take the time right when we get a draft, if we determine it's it works right away before we've even edited it, we start working. Our art director, we explore which same kind of casting deal. Who's the right artist for this? We find the artist we begin the conversation and we have pretty, you know, pretty editorial process there too, or we want to make sure that the art accurately reflects the message and the nuance of these really long, complicated pieces, because it's pretty easy to get it wrong if you're not carefully reading the text. So that's an in initial what we do.
0: Do you feel that it's a challenge to in sort of establishing the tone of a story, you know, cause I can imagine sometimes if something is being written by an academic, you know, they, they may be sort of lacking in the ability to create something that somebody wants to read. Yeah. It, it may not be able to make those types of connections. Um, it, is that a challenge sometimes?
1: It is a challenge and it's a challenge that again, most other media outlets don't have the time to take on. So I do think that that's what makes one of the things that makes us unique is that we are willing to take on some writers that might not be the easiest because we know, well, not always, but if we read it and we see that there's something really interesting there, we, we want to work with them. And that, that of course requires them to be pretty flexible um, when it comes to our substantial editing and that needs to be agreed upon from the get-go. But the other thing we do is before, so, so sometimes we get the full draft before we've even heard of the piece but other times we get the pitch and when, in those cases, we send them pretty extensive writing guidelines that I've written and I've honed over the years, but particularly since Noema was founded. And those have a lot of guidelines and tips that are supposed to help you know writers, particularly academic writers, learn what we're looking for, how to make your voice a little bit more colorful, a little bit more inviting and you know how important the lead is and how important it is to have concrete examples and not be too vague or theoretical we try to give a lot of direction up front and um and then if we don't you know if if we get a piece and it's still missing a couple of those crucial elements identify what's missing and we send it back to them and they rework it and And, you know, so it takes time, but the product is is worth it in the end for something really special.
0: What would you say is the average turnaround on a, you know, from a pitch to something published?
1: Oh, it really ranges. It can be a month. It can be a week. And Hmm. then everything in between. (laughs) I mean, it can actually be more than a month, you know, but but I'm trying to give you the averages.
0: Well, I would imagine... Especially if you're you're dealing with somebody who is familiar with a maybe an expert on a particular topic, as opposed to somebody that you're assigning it to, that you know they're going to have a lot of the information at their fingertips, and so you know maybe that's something they're going to be right. able to uh, assemble an idea fairly a uh, draft fairly quickly.
1: That's right, and that's that's part of the casting is that where you know a journalist or a reporter. Does often doesn't know much about what they're about to report, um, but we're specifically picking people that do know what they're, uh, you know, that have experience and expertise in the area that they're writing about. So they have a little bit, they can hit the ground running a bit more and have more authority in what they say. You know, authority matters quite a bit. I mean, it's not, it's not, every piece is different in that regard, but that helps.
0: Yeah, oh, oh, for sure. Um, And yet, not everybody who writes something for you is an expert on something. You might have a journalist, you know, who is really good at researching and and turning around something in in a reasonable amount of time. So, for somebody who may be out there looking to to write something with a little more depth and a little more perspective, you know, what advice would you give to somebody who maybe wanted to pitch to you?
1: I mean, I'm always looking at pitches for something that makes me think differently about whatever the topic is, pitches that add to the conversation instead of mimicking what's already out there. I'm particularly keen on solution-based pitches rather than pitches that diagnose problems that are already pretty well diagnosed. And then, like I said before, or hinted at before, you're going to want to have a focused thesis, and then you're going to want to back that up with concrete examples and details. And even if you know, if, if your idea is very hypothetical and futuristic, you might not have real world examples, but you can make hypothetical ones. It's better than nothing, right? And then, you know, like I always emphasize that the devil is in, is in the details. So while we do encourage these big ideas that are up in the sky, we always push our writers on the nitty gritty details of execution down in the weeds.
0: Tell me about the experience of being the the editor of this magazine. I mean, you know, you launched it. Now you're a couple of years into it. How has your role kind of changed or grown?
1: With any new venture, in the beginning, there's fewer of you and you're kind of wearing many hats and learning a lot in that first year. Now that we're in our second year, we're growing, we're, we're hiring, we are setting into place some more procedures. I mean, they were already there, like I said, with World Post, but it's a constant process of honing how to be most efficient and effective in our editorial cycles. So we're working on that and you know always looking to grow our base of writers and, and ideas. So it's it's really exciting. There's a lot of freedom in our model because you know we're generously funded and we aren't beholden to ads or clicks. And so as I said, that, that allows us to take more risks with pitches and with writers who perhaps are a bit outside the usual pool of, of writers and thinkers. So trying to lean into that and take advantage of that and, and do things differently. Because you know, when you're reliant on clicks, you end up largely covering what other outlets are covering because it's quote unquote in the conversation and you want to be in the conversation. But because we've we're freed up. From that 24-hour news cycle, we we can dare to, and we're constantly continuing to push ourselves to dare to start new conversations and trust that readers will be interested. And I think there's a little bit of retraining for me and for my other staff members who have had more traditional journalist jobs in the past where taking time on something was not really permitted. So giving ourselves the time to research and dig for little discussed policy proposals that we might want to give a platform really reaps rewards in the end. Because even before we were in OEMA, as World Post, we were ahead of the curve on issues when we were when we dared to cover what no one else was covering. So for example, back in the early days of World Post over seven years ago, it was pretty rare at the time for outlets to cover. Synthetic biology and artificial intelligence, as much as we did, they were still sort of seen as a little fringy or a little like, oh, what did crazy Elon Musk say? You know, um, now it's much more uh, rigorously discussed in mainstream media. But so we're looking for new topics like that where we can push the conversation forward and not not try to be in a part of a conversation that might already have lots of other writers and outlets writing, uh, you know, and discussing.
0: So. Sort of continuing on with that idea, I mean, have there been stories, you know, recent stories that you've published that you feel like have some new thinking or topics that you're kind of excited to have out there?
1: One topic that we've published a couple of really successful pieces that have really resonated and gone viral, actually, but you would not think they're viral at all because they're not, again, they're not about anything in the headlines or any term trending on social media. They were about time. We had two different pieces about the nature of time. One was in the beginning, not in the beginning, but close to the beginning, a couple months into the pandemic, and then one was more recent than that. And it was less. The first one was a little bit more tied to pandemic time and how pandemic changed our perception of time. And then the other one was um, in the summer, and it it took a more historical well, both of them were quite based in historical and scientific context about how we came to define time and how it affects our lives now. And the most exciting part about both of those is that they open this question of, do we need to redefine time to better suit our world now and to better suit our lives now? And the, the implication is yes, <laughs> that we, we probably should. It's probably time for an update. And I think a lot, I think a reason why it resonated with people is because people do, I mean, right there in the title, when the tyranny of time, I think people do feel like time is tyrannical and a bit too controlling, and they're not actually following their own biological clocks or their own sort of animalistic needs and desires on the timeline. They're just looking at the machine, which is the clock and letting it dictate everything. So that's one example of a kind of a a wonky topic, a little bit more philosophical. But again, because we have more time, speaking of time, (laughs) how crucial it is, we have it and and we're able to take on these kind of more complex, wonky topics and put in the hours that it takes to to transform the text and make sure it's accessible. I mean, you know, accessible to a wider audience. I think in actually in those two cases, the, the writers were just so fantastic. We didn't actually have to spend too much time on it, but there are good examples of one of our goals, which is to frame the issues we cover in historical context and often philosophical context and social context so that it's you know framed in the bigger picture, sort of uh, 10,000 feet from the sky. And that's, that, that's the unique approach, I think.
0: I think the, the pandemic gave a lot of people time to think about things like that, about time, about how they're spending their lives and, and whatnot. And, you know, making them more receptive to these ideas.
1: Yeah, and people are happier. They saying that, you know, they're like, they're sleeping when they need to, when they want to, they're eating when they need to, when they want to, as opposed to when the rigid clock tells them to, and, and people are opening their eyes to this whole different lifestyle. So we can talk about that now among everyone, you know, at the water cooler, but what if we get an expert to place it in historical social context about how time has changed and the perceptions have affected our lifestyles over the past couple hundred years, that really enriches the conversation I think a lot of people are already having.
0: Kathleen, thanks for being on the podcast. This is really kind of fascinating. I like the idea of having a publication that has a little time to focus on big ideas. And I congratulate you in doing that because I think that's really kind of important to have a publication like this. Thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud,